Hello, and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we're going to be talking about what else but the main topic of the season, a heist. So, this episode is all about the 2000 Stockholm Museum robbery, a heist that, while pretty spectacular, I actually had a hard time finding any information on. So, this is likely to be a quick but very fun episode, but first, and I don't know if I'm going to keep doing this, I don't know if there's any results that have been yielded from this yet, and it feels kind of tatty to me to do this, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, if you don't already do so, please be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at hight underscore obsessed underscore podcast and at high to podcast respectively, and if you search high to obsessed, it'll pop up you know, Twilight Zone type logo, a little bit of a pineapple in there. And if you want to shoot over an email to the show, that is podcast at gmail.com. So feel free to do that. And as always, you know, I want those five star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. If you feel like doing that, greatly appreciated, really makes me feel good. I will help get the show to new audiences, that type of thing. Anyway, now with that little bit, And I feel like that was pretty quick, but that quick little bit of housekeeping out of the way, we can move on to the main topic here today, the big kahuna, the meat and potatoes. This slice is probably the most intricate of the ones I've talked about so far. I think D.B. Cooper's skyjacking was pretty complex, right? It was up there. The great train robbery of 1963 was as well to an extent. But I think this one does take the cake as far as, I think this one does take the cake as far as complexity is concerned. So the reason, if you recall, this was supposed to be a movie this was supposed to be hell or high water and this episode was supposed to come out a week before but actually the anniversary for this heist is tomorrow so i decided i would postpone this episode a week and put it out right before the anniversary which maybe will help get some increased traffic going on we'll see we'll see at about 4:55 p.m. which was 5 minutes before the museum was set to close on december 22nd 2000 a man armed with a submachine gun and accompanied by two other men who were wielding handguns, entered the Stockholm National Museum. Now, the reason that they were so heavily armed, specifically with the submachine gun, was to overwhelm and overawe the guards into sub- submission and into surrendering. They didn't want any resistance. They didn't want any, you know, anything, really. They wanted to be able to get in, get out quickly, and look super intimidating while they did so. In just a few minutes, the robbers were able to make off with three paintings valued between a total of 30 or 45 million U.S. dollars. And those estimates do vary depending on who you want to ask and what sources. And I feel like that's another recurring thing we've seen throughout this season is there is not a lot of continuity, a lot of agreement between our experts on the valuation and even the attribution of a lot of these pieces. Anyway, the three paintings that were stolen were a self-portrait by Rembrandt and two paintings by Renoir, Renoir. Uh, conversation and young parisian links to white collar the show i touched on a few weeks ago i do know who rembrandt and renoir are and if i can find pictures on the paintings online which i'm sure i will i'll post them on instagram so you guys can check them out as well with the paintings in tow and i do like that they kept it small you know they stuck to three highly valued pieces of art not a ton to carry not a ton to offload but with the paintings in tow the robbers got out clean no evidence left and they 
not only meti- they not only meticulously plant meticulously planned their heist, but also the getaway. So, like I mentioned, the submachine guns were specifically planned for intimidation. But prior to the heist, the robbers had raised two cars to blow. So they set off two explosions to distract the police and emergency responders. So the cops and all that are all the way on the other side of town while the heist is going on and while they're getting away. They also threw nails in front of the museum to pop the tires of police cars that would wind up chasing them. So sort of like heat where after they crash into the armored truck, they roll out that uh, like police barricade type thing with the nails and a couple of the cars crash into it and forced to stop. And you're probably thinking, you know, that's pretty cool. You know, they blew up cars, they broke in, got in and out in a few minutes. They got some super famous, super valuable paintings by super famous artists, and then they even had the nails down in case the cops tried to chase them. It's right out of a movie, right? But it gets even cooler. You see, they didn't escape via car, but by speedboat, which is fully sick. They had moored a boat nearby in the waterway just outside the museum, which has water on two sides, and eventually opens up into the Baltic Sea, which means that they could have gone inland back towards uh, a bunch of locations in Sweden, or they could have made their way to Finland, to Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Denmark, or even um, like upper northern Sweden as well. So they had a ton of options at their disposal for escape routes, and this could have been international, they could have been off into the wind super quickly. The police did find that abandoned boat just a short time later uh, in the day, which kind of dashes my dream of them taking making an international escape via speedboat to these exotic locations. But, you know, maybe they just switched boats. Who knows? Anyway, uh, despite the machine guns, explosions, and nails, nobody was killed or injured during the heist, which is something you absolutely love to see. At the time of the heist, museum director Torsten Gunnarsson would note that the paintings were very small, which enabled them to be stolen quickly and easily, and obviously also noted that the paintings were incredibly, incredibly valuable. It was also the first time that the museum had ever been robbed. Donerson would say, we've never had a similar robbery with weapons. It's never happened in Sweden, as far as I know. Which is a great look for the Swedes, in my opinion. You know, great job by them not robbing museums. Also, not having their museums robbed. Now, when asked about a potential motivation for the theft, Thomas Hall, an arts professor at Stockholm University, said, The whole robbery is absurd. The paintings will eventually return to the museum. No collector wants to buy something that you can't show, which is something we've seen in all these stories with art crime. You can't move the paintings because no one wants to buy them because you can't display them prominently and show off to your friends. Gunnarsson would also note that they were probably stolen to blackmail the museum for a ransom. But unfortunately, he said, But we won't pay any money. We don't have any money. Which again, similar to the Montreal Museum heist, Guys, we gotta be out here supporting the arts museum people. I don't know that they should be supported so that they can pay ransoms. I just think in general, we should support them and give them a little bit of money, you know? Anyway, we see here, despite the appearance of this being a well-thought-out and intricately planned heist, maybe wasn't as brilliant as we would think. Because the problem with art heist is you can't move the merchandise after you steal it. And it seems like people always think, you know, let's steal some art, it's super famous, we can, it's worth millions and millions and millions. We can use it as collateral for all these other transactions. 
but it gets so hot so fast. Like, police are looking for it. They know where the fences are and where to find it. They know, like, who's trying to, they know when it's moved. And that's usually when people are found is when they sell the art, not from stealing it. And because it's so easy to get caught when you sell it, no one wants to exchange the the painting for roughly equal value in another good, like, cocaine or drugs or guns or anything like that. It's just not good business. And there's not these weird private collectors like we see in movies and stuff who have hordes of stolen art. I mean, I'm sure there are some, but it's not like this huge thing that all wealthy people have like movies would lead us to believe. So in my opinion, in my expert opinion, if you are going to steal some art, right? Not what I would recommend, but if you are going to do it, make sure that you already have a buyer in place or that you're commissioned for the heist prior to turning it off. So basically... You don't want to get your money from the painting. You want to already be paid for providing the painting. Anywho, back to this case. The former head of Sweden's criminal police, Tommy Lindstrom, said that he believed that the pictures were already on their way out of Sweden at the time, probably to Eastern Europe, kind of like I was saying, where many newly rich businessmen were eager to invest in art. So he's kind of completely disagreeing with this. He's like, we have a kind of international criminality which didn't exist in before. There's no wall between us and Eastern Europe. Is my guy advocating for the return of the Soviet Union? Perhaps. You know, maybe a hot take. And that's, you know, like I was saying, kind of a counterpoint to the idea that stealing art is a bad idea or that this heist in particular was dumb. Now, unfortunately, my research didn't bring up a ton in terms of the investigation into the theft, like how the culprits were caught or any of that. But within weeks, all ten believe within weeks, all ten people believed to be responsible for the heist were captured. So we're in early January 2001 at this point. Police receive a ransom demand for several million kronar from a lawyer working on behalf of the thieves. The ransom demand also included photos of the paintings in order to prove that they were the real thieves and not some like people trying to make a quick buck off of this theft. However, the police obviously didn't pay this. And also, the museum didn't have the money to pay the ransom, so no money there either. And like I said, this is sort of where things get relatively fuzzy. A lot of the articles stick to the arrests and all that, so we don't have a super clear look into how things went down from here. We basically know that between 10 and 13 people were arrested for being involved in this, depending on which sources you read. And two were charged with being directly responsible for the robbery, and these two received sentences of six and six and a half years in prison and six others were sentenced to between two and four year stints for lesser crimes associated with the robbery and there's not really names you can find there's just like i think they were mostly eastern european men but that's it it was kept relatively private relatively quiet there was a big trial um they were also ordered to pay the museum 30 million in damages, which was the estimated value at the time of the court cases of the two paintings which were still missing. One of the three paintings that was stolen had been recovered in a unrelated drug raid, which was conversations by Renoir. It was recovered, and you know, the thieves were kind of off the hook, back at the museum. But Renoir's young Parisian and Rembrandt's self-portrait were still in the wind, still missing, and still out there. So now most articles about this kind of end there, and that's all we got. They just say that the paintings were recovered in 2005, and all three are now back at the museum. But entering stage left is our guy, Robert Whitman, who you may or may not remember from the Skylight Caper episode. So our guy's called in. 
And Robert Whitman, as it turns out, was not just an arts expert in the FBI, but he was like a badass, super sick FBI agent who was awesome at recovering stolen art and art-adjacent things. And because this episode is going to be short, we are going to get more into him at the end of this. But for now, let's stick to this investigation with our guy Whitman. So Whitman actually went into the field to investigate this, uh, these two missing paintings. He posed undercover as a dirty art dealer wanting to buy the painting. In an interview with NPR, he would say, I was undercover at that point as an authenticator for an Eastern European mob group. After about two weeks with the thieves who were still in Stockholm, we negotiated the price of the Rembrandt down to 250000 We actually had 250000 in cash at the hotel room. We were bringing it back and forth to let them know it was real. In the hotel room, video surveillance was recording every single move that Whitman and the thieves made. In next door, there was a Danish SWAT team waiting for a signal from Whitman to move in and make arrests. Whitman had to convince the thieves that the money was good before another accomplice would enter the room and bring the painting to the hotel. So once that went down, you know, they were like, all right, let's make a deal. Arrests were made and the Rembrandt was successfully recovered. Great job by Whitman and, you know, Danish SWAT police. Great job by them. The painting was valued by that point around $36 million, according to Whitman. And because the thieves hadn't been able to move it, and these aren't the original thieves who were in prison, these are like whoever got it next, they were willing to accept a quarter of a million dollars for a $36 million painting because they've had it. They've had had it since early 2001 at that point. And it's that flaw in art crime that keeps getting brought up again and again. Possible to move. Now, the reason that Whitman and his team were able to recover the Rembrandt is because earlier in 2005, during a rob... (laughs) During an operation against a Bulgarian crime syndicate, information pertaining to the young Parisian came out. They recovered the young Parisian, and they were able to spin that into getting more information about the Rembrandt, and then make connections, and ultimately close this case. But unfortunately, there's like not a lot of details into all of this, and all the investigations. All of the articles they found, they just sort of matter-of-factly tell us what happened. And it sucks because this is like a juicy heist seemingly ripped right out of the movies. There's explosions, there's like international art thieves, there's a world-traveling FBI agent who's just like a set expert art recovery guy. And the articles are all so short and they're just like, this happened, this happened, five years later it was all recovered, now it's back to the museum. So despite this being a super cool heist, that's all I have for you. Like, we're already done, pretty quick. And now it's time to get into Robert Whitman flesh this out a little bit. Robert Kane, which is a sick middle name, Robert Kane Whitman was born in Tokyo, Japan in 1955. Apparently his parents met while his father was stationed in the U.S. Air Force in Tokyo during the Korean War and his mother was Japanese. Whitman started his career with a agriculture magazine that was based in Maryland and because he was like a salesman for them, he credits that salesmanship skills and also his time so his parents were like antiques dealers, and so he was sort of born into the art world a little bit. He credits those two things with his success in later undercover stains and operations as an FBI agent. He joined the FBI in 1988 as a special agent, and as an agent, he had one hell of a career. He served as the FBI's investigative expert in art and cultural property crime investigations, and during his 20-year career with the FBI, he recovered more than $300 million, $300 million worth of stolen art and cultural property, 
resulting in the prosecution and conviction of numerous individuals. In 2005, he was instrumental in the creation of the FBI's Rapid Deployment Art Crime Team, and he was the ACT's senior investigator and tasked with instructing the team's founding members in cultural property investigation techniques. So in a way, he's sort of like the Peter Burke if you've seen White Collar. Kind of the it guy when it comes to finding all this stuff. Oh, at least he was before retiring and setting up his own private little security art recovery protection consulting firm type thing. During his career, he was involved in the recovery of some, like, some super cool artifacts and pieces of art. Uh, included in this were his recovery of the some of the original copies of the Bill of Rights, which had been missing for 140 years, uh, Geronimo's war bonnet and pre-Columbian armor, and just like a ton of paintings and other pieces of artwork. Now that's just like those three things I listed are just like a few. It's obviously a lot. It's over 300 million dollars worth of stuff. But like I said, that's really all I have for you for the heist today. And even adding that Whitman stuff, it's pretty quick. And because this episode was much quicker than I had hoped for and what I usually do, even stretching it out, I decided I'm going to tack a No Way Home reaction to the end of this. So that's Spider-Man No Way Home. From here on out, I'm going to be talking about that. So if you haven't seen Spider-Man No Way Home, you can stick around for a little, little bit because I'll give you guys a warning before I get into spoilers and before I even get too far into the vibes. There will also be some Hawkeye talk for like the whole season of Hawkeye so far at the very end not that the two are related just like so you know um and I'll give a warning before all that as well so if your team no hype and you don't want to get your hopes up or down or know anything to expect all I will say is go see No Way Home and then and peace on up out of here that's it so goodbye goodbye people I love you if you're not team no hype and you haven't seen No Way Home still say obviously go see it it's awesome Everyone brings it, you know, there's obviously in something like this, there's a lot of fan service going on, but it's awesome and it's not hollow. Um, No Way Home works as a movie and it's really good. I don't know how I'd evaluate it outside of the context of the MCU and the other Spider-Man movies, but I will say in that context, which is what it is, it is a sick movie and definitely go check it out. And I think that ends the spoiler free talk for me. I'm sure I could say more. Um, but guess what, people? I kind of want to just get into the spoiler stuff. So, clear on up out of here. I love you lovely people, and I'll catch you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Alright, guys. Now that they're gone. Holy shit. No Way Home is fucking nuts, right? So we knew Alfred Molina and William Defoe were coming back. We knew it. We knew Jamie Foxx was coming back. I don't know if we knew that Thomas Hayden Church and whoever plays the lizard were coming back, but they did. And guess what, people? They all crushed it. I mean, sure, Jamie Foxx dialed it up a little bit too much at times, but overall, everyone was awesome. Nobody phoned it in, which I was worried about. And Willem Dafoe and Alfred Merlina were awesome. In addition to the villains, we had some suspicions that our guy Daredevil was coming back, right? Charlie Cox is back, and that's great to see. Just a quick scene, but we love to see it, right? Like, you know, we don't need too much more. This movie was already jam-packed. We also, and listen, I don't know why I keep saying we. I guess maybe I'm excited, but anyway, maybe I mean we Marvel fans, the internet, whatever. We had some hopes and ideas that the OG Spider-Man would be coming back. It would have been crazy if Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield didn't roll into town. But they did roll back into town, and they fucking crushed it. 
fucking crushed it. Awesome performances from both. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Especially Garfield, who to me, along with Willem Dafoe, won this movie. Dafoe was awesome. Dude is like 66 years old. And after seeing the movie, I saw some interviews he did where he was saying he only agreed to come back if it wasn't a cameo and he was like actually in the movie. It was a real role. And if he could do some of his own action and fighting stunts to like earn the acting stuff, he said. And um, he had a massive role in this, I would say. And like, he dude just beat wholesale ass and it was awesome. It was just great to see. I keep saying awesome. I'm just excited. It was, I mean, like, I'm not acting like it's Citizen Kane, but it was a fucking jam up, really, really, really fun act. Marvel movie. It was set. Anyway, Willem Dafoe propelled this movie. He kicked off Spider-Man's mission to save all the villains. He killed Aunt May. His performance picked right back up where it left off. He was menacing. He was scary. He was just like campy and silly, but like awesome and funny. Uh, he beat wholesale ass, like I said. He fucked Spider-Man up, to be clear. Like, just wrecked him. Stabbed Toby Spider-Man. Just great stuff. I would say, like, this is how I would put it. In this movie, Willem Dafoe was so good as Green Goblin that he was also the second best Joker after Heath Ledger. From here, I'm going to go through all the main characters, not necessarily like in order or anything, but just give my thoughts on all of them. So obviously, Dafoe dash Goblin crushed it, which I'm sure we expected, right? Dude's an awesome actor. Um, and I texted some buddies who had seen the movie, and I said, you know, who won this movie? And all of them either said Dafoe or William Darfield. Or Willem Darfield. Either everyone either said Defoe or Darfield. So JT, you know, recurrent guest on the show, Marvel expert. JT said that Andrew Darfield won because he solidified his legacy, redeemed himself as Spider-Man, and also we already knew that Defoe was amazing, and that he was a great Green Goblin and would steal the scenes he was in. Everyone else I touched did say that Defoe won this movie and that their runners up were Darfield, and I think I'm more in that camp where it was like. Defoe fucking dominated this movie, stole every scene, and was, like, electric. But Andrew Garfield came in, like, off the bench, dropped a 40-point triple-double or something like that. He was funny, he was charming, and he was, like, he was Spider-Man. He was a great mentor to Tom Holland Spider-Man and a good mentee for Toby Spider-Man. He kind of, like, he knew his role, he was a glue guy, played exactly his role, what we wanted him to do. A little bit, like, gave a little bit more, but not too much. And he was, like, he was great. Him catching MJ, which was, like, kind of telegraphed, and we saw it coming from the trailers, still worked. And that scene hit, and it crushed. And it was just, like, it was great to see him as, like, a down-on-the-dumps, kind of hurt Spider-Man, who just, just like that, was ready and willing to jump back in the fight and, like, be goofy and loving and help this younger Spider-Man avoid the mistakes that he had made. He like he was so good that, and I didn't like the Amazing Spider-Man. I did think he was a good Spider-Man, but I didn't like the movies. Um, I want to see him get another chance. Toby Spider-Man was also really, really good. He was the wisest Spider-Man. You know, he'd been beaten down by life and the role and his duties, and come out the other side. He had some funny moments, but he was much more understated and serious. He had um, he had good moments with Garfield. Tom Holland, uh, Alfred Molina's Dot Ott, who I haven't talked about enough yet, and Willem Dafoe. I think he was rock solid. He wasn't as good as Darfield, Molina, or Dafoe, but he was awesome with a few misfires, but just like really, really good. And it was great seeing his Spider Man again. I didn't. I felt like I was fine 
I obviously wanted them in the movie for the hype value, but I was fine like with whatever they gave us and both of them crushed it and it was like it was really cool. Alfred Molina, who I said I think when this was first announced, maybe before, which would be a little weird, but like right around the time it was announced that he would be back as Dot Ot for this movie, I was saying to some friends, I was like, him as Dot Ot is like super underrated in these conversations about perfect Spider Man casting. Like you can't picture anyone else or not per- as perfect superhero movie casting where you can't really picture anyone else in the role. And he brought all that back again. It was cool because like all these people were back. They weren't playing like the MCU version of their characters. They were back playing the characters from their movies. And there was like they were a little bit funnier because it is MCU. But like for the most part, they felt in universe transported to this universe. And it was awesome. Alfred Molina brought his Doc Ock, his Otto Octavius back again. He was funny. He was he had really great chemistry with Tom Holland, especially I thought, and the other villains as well. And they did a great job of making him not really a villain, especially once he was cured. And even before that, just kind of like misguided, I guess. Like, which made sense for his depiction in the movie and from Spider-Man 2. And that's just something that I was saying. I think they did a really good job of not doing wish fulfillment. Like, it was they plucked those characters from their own universes. One notable exception to that is obviously Jamie Foxx's Electro. Which Jamie Foxx did well. It was okay. Um, it was a little hammy at times, but they completely changed him. I think because Feige really didn't like his the way they did Electro in the Amazing Spider-Man Two, even though he liked Jamie Foxx as Electro. Um, Jamie Foxx is great. You know, we all know that he's super talented in a bunch of ways. It just felt kind of like maybe everyone involved was too excited to have him back, and it was just a little bit too much. And I am kind of bummed he's. Like, just a one-off as Electro and not something else in the MCU, because I would have liked that. Uh, so he was good. He just wasn't as good as the rest of the those returning that I've mentioned so far to me. Lizard was fine. You know, I didn't really care about him either way. Uh, it was cool to see him, I guess. Didn't do anything wrong. He was okay. Sandman was mostly CGI. Um, He was, for like a shot and a half, not CGI. But the voice performance from Thomas Hayden Church was good. He wasn't a true villain. He just, like, wasn't super cooperative with the heroes. But, you know, rock solid. Nothing to write home about. But also nothing to complain about. Marissa Tomei did well as Aunt May. But Aunt May herself, character was kind of weird in this. The whole sort of Tom Holland Spider-Man has to save these villains was weird. And so was Aunt May getting rope-a-doped by Norman Osborn and then killed by the Green Goblin. Didn't love to see that. That kind of sucked in general. I didn't need her to give the great with great with great power comes great responsibility speech. I understand why they did it. Um, I saw it coming from pretty far away, but you know, it wasn't cringy or anything. It worked. I just don't. I didn't need it, but it worked. Um, and I understand why it happened. Ned was the same as always. You know, pretty annoying, kind of funny. I didn't love his innate magic ability using the slain rain pretty easily stuff, but whatever. You know, it's not super complaining. It's just a little nitpick. MJ was great. Um, Zendaya was awesome. MJ was cool because it was like, I mean, she, not in a weird way, but she bonded with all three. Like, she represented something to all three Spider-Men, I guess. And um, Zendaya went off, especially at the end when she's like, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange got fucking worked by Spider-Man in this movie. 
He got left hanging over the Grand Canyon for 12 hours in the mirror dimension. He broke the multiverse. He tried to get a bots batch from Spider-Man after he did the body chakra split thing, astral separation thing, which is a tough look for the dot all in all. He also got the pumpkin bomb in the bots with the spell in it from Green Goblin. So all in all, I'll say he has some egg on his face in this. Kind of wild that he didn't talk out the spell with P- to Peter more before they cast it. Like, why not just sit down and be like, we're going to cast the spell. Everyone's going to forget who you are. Any, like, any objections? Like, everyone, except for me. And I'm, I assume in his head he was like, me and the heroes are going to remember you, but that's it. But whatever. Um. So, like, why not? If they just, he talked it out and Peter was like, okay, cool. I just want MJ, Ned. I just want everyone who knows I'm Spider-Man. I just, if Peter was like, I want everyone who knew before Mysterio released it that I was Spider-Man to keep knowing that I'm Spider-Man and everyone else to forget that I'm Spider-Man, Doctor Strange could have done that and then this movie doesn't happen. So it's just one of those things where you gotta suspend, you gotta get some bullshit in here to make the movie happen. But whatever. And it does kind of make sense. Doctor Strange is arrogant, Peter's a kid. So it chats out a little bit. And that brings us to Peter 1 aka Tom Holland Spider-Man. So this might just be me. I feel like Tom Holland hasn't 100% lived up to some of the flashes we've seen from him, where it seemed like he was on the cusp of becoming like one of our next great actors. Um and he is very good. I'm just like so in Homecoming, the scene where he gets pinned by that building and then when he gets dusted by Thanos in Infinity War, just like very 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 um, like great scenes. But other than that, he's just like B plus, A minus type of thing, and those are A pluses, and it seems like he could have been Robert Downey Jr. type, maybe, like, just awesome, maybe not Robert Downey Jr., but like, you know, like, in terms of actual acting, but like, superhero acting, he should have been like, as iconic and perfect as Thor, as Iron Man, as Cap, like that type of thing, and he has been solid, and he's been solid in other things as well, but it, I just, for me, I don't feel like he lived up to some of the flashes we've seen. And he was great in this, especially in, like, the emotional scenes again. But it did kind of feel like Garfield ate his lunch a little bit and took it to him. And I know movies aren't actually, like, sporting events in the NBA and stuff like that. But to me, it reminded me of a situation like the Jazz a few years ago, where Gordon Hayward was a superstar. He's, like, the guy on the team. But then at the end of the game, Joe Johnson has taken the last shot. And I know that's not exactly what happened. Like, Toby did a lot. Tom Holland did a lot. It just felt sort of like maybe like a LeBron, Kyrie Irving situation where Andrew Garfield got the splashy shot and Tom Holland's the one that got them in that position type of thing as LeBron. I don't know. But this was an important movie for his Spider-Man because it corrected a lot of the faults that a lot of people had with him, right? He had too much help in the previous movies. He was doing way too big stuff. He wasn't a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He kind of felt like a sidekick in a lot of these movies. And to me, all that stuff was okay. I didn't love it. But the big, huge flaw was that he was way too willy-nilly with his identity. Everyone knew who he was. Like, everyone that wanted to know found it out. Iron Man figured it out. Aunt May found out. His friend knew. Zendaya figured it out. MJ figured it out. Uh, He told Mysterio. Like, and then Mysterio dots him. Like, everybody knew who Spider-Man was. Spider-Man was the most important, or most famous person in the world. And I know a lot of that team in this movie where it's the most famous person in the world, but too many people knew before that, and it just didn't work. It's just like a whole big thing is how how carefully he protects his identity. 
But because of this movie, basically the first three movies, Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame, those were his origin story, which is incredible. They reset him back sort of to where the Spider-Man we know and love in the comics. And there are, obviously, he's completely 100% alone, so there are notable exceptions. Maybe now they're going to bring in, like, a Gwen Stacy instead of bringing MJ back. Maybe they're going to do some new things. He has Aunt May's dead, Uncle Ben's dead. Who knows what's about to happen? But, like, you know, he's poor, back in the neighborhood, nobody knows who he is. I'm all set. And I'm excited to see what happens with the next traditions. Now, in terms of the actual movie stuff, I think it was really cool. It was really good. But I do have a lot of nitpits, obviously. There was a lot of, like, anytime magic's involved in a movie, we're going to have some questions. But besides those, um, Tom Holland Spider-Man fucked up in a very real way, if I can be real with you. He asked, Spider- he asked Doctor Strange to brainwash the entire planet, and I guess the entire universe, to get his friends into college, which is just wild. He then went against an almost all-powerful sorcerer, Doctor Strange, to save villains from themselves, and aside from Doc Ock and Sandman, and maybe the Lizard and Electro before they got converted to monsters, these guys fucking suck. Green Goblin and Norm Osborn suck. Electro and Lizard are evil. Like, so Lizard, Electro, Green Goblin... If you want to be like tragic stories, like they suck. They were evil. Sandman, not really evil. Dot Dot, possessed by the weird arm evil intelligence. But like, especially Green Goblin, like bad people. And so he's risking his life and the life of others. Doing that for them is a mistake to me. Even if it is a total superhero Peter Parker thing to do. And it ends up costing him big time. Like if he just sends them home to live with the consequences of their own actions... He just sends them home to their own timelines to just do what already happened to them. They're already dead. They got plucked from time. But like, if he just sent them back, none of this happened. So because of this, he lost his Aunt May, and he had to sacrifice his identity to save the multiverse. And it's just a tough look. Like, just make better choices, and then you don't have to suffer. That said, all in all, I really enjoyed this movie. I'm excited to see where this stats up. After seeing it again, you know, reevaluating, getting removed from the hype and the spectacle, knowing what's to come, not just sitting there all happy, like, oh my god, they did it. They fucking pulled it off. They got this meme in. They got that meme in. They got, like, everyone's bad. This is so cool to see. I think it worked. It was funny. It was inventive. It had a ton of standout moments. It re- rebooted the MCU Spider-Man, which is said, connected it to the multiverse, keeping the Tom Holland appearance in Across the Spider-Verse in play. Sets up Multiverse of Madness, even Spider-Man 4 for Toby or Amazing Spider-Man 3 for Garfield if we want to go that route. And it especially depends, like, maybe we get Tom Holland in Venom, or not Tom Holland, Andrew Garfield in Venom, you know, or Mobius, or all, and some of that nonsense. And my friends and I were saying that if they go that route, it feels like Garfield would be a better match for Venom, because Tom Hardy would just kind of devour Tom Holland Spider-Man as we've seen like I don't think Tom Holland Spider-Man has the energy to go against Venom at this point but we'll see we'll see what happens I do wish speaking of Venom that his cameo extended beyond the credits maybe we got like one little scene where he sees Spider-Man and talks to him or like he sees Lizard and it's like what the fuck is that thing or something like that oh my god I totally forgot J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson which is one of the best adaptation castings of all time. You know, it's right up there with Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man. Um, just him being bad is awesome, and it's sick. 
and then making him an Alice Jones type. Very interesting, and it totally works for this day and age. And he was great. I wonder if all that yelling fries his Volt reports and how much rehab he has to do for that. Because we'd have to keep him safe for Invincible Season 2, you know? We'd have to keep that voice ready to rock in case Omni-Man comes back. Anyway, I think that's all I have to say for now. Um, I'm sorry I was kind of rambly, but I can't wait to watch No Way Home again. I'll, I think I'll wait it out until it's out of theaters, you know, get those digital downloads going. But I love this movie. It was a ton of fun, and I think it's in my top five to seven MCU movies. We'll see, we'll see. Uh, but Hawkeye spoilers, and then I'm out. So if you haven't seen Hawkeye, dip. Okay, so Charlie Cotts, he's back as Daredevil, right? Vincent D'Onofrio, back as Teenpin. And the Echo spinoff show. Like, that's pretty excited. I can't wait to see all those guys messing around, seeing what's going on. Especially with, like, Moon Knight show coming, Spider-Man reintroduced, Bat as the street-level type of guy. Maybe Blade, Daredevil, Moon Knight get into some of the weird paranormal stuff. I can't wait for all that stuff. That's going to be exciting. Like, Kingpin, maybe he's fucking around with Spider-Man, Daredevil. Deadpool could be involved because Deadpool, like, is obsessed with Spider-Man in the comments. We'll see. Anyway... Apologize for the rambling on the second half of this podcast, but I think I'm out. So, if you did what you're hearing, make sure to drop a rating and review on the podcast platform of your choice. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me get those banner reviews. Help me rise up the charts. Get the podcast out to more people. Increase the audience. Increase the listeners. All that good stuff. Also, be sure to follow the show on Instagram at high underscore obsessed underscore podcast and on Twitter at high podcast. Check out the memes, updates, book reviews, all that good stuff. I got going on on those platforms. National treasure is coming, people. Until next time, be sure to stay safe out there, not steal any art, or cast any spells that should break the multiverse, and have happy holidays and a Merry Christmas to all of you, and I'll catch y'all on the flippity flip.